now this is where we're going to pick up now, right? Because I don't want to always be the bearer of bad news, all right? This is a cautionary tale now, David's life. David's life is a cautionary tale. David's life is much like the life of Aaron Hernandez. Cautionary tale. Signs a $40 million contract with the Patriots and then turns to gang banging. Goes to jail and commits suicide, leaving his fiance and his daughter to fend for themselves. Aaron Hernandez, cautionary tale. Here's the flip side of the story. Most people don't know that Aaron Hernandez was considered the most likable guy in his school. Considered the most likable guy by his friends and his coaches. And then his dad died from a hernia surgery that went wrong. And his mom says from that point on, her son was different. Why do I bring that up? Because most of us learn how to live with pain that is unresolved. Not only that, his mom marries another guy after his dad dies, and this guy had a criminal past and cut his mom, almost killed her, cut her in the face. Cut her in the cheek, almost killed his mom. So in the span of about two years, he loses his dad and almost loses his mom. And he starts to hang out with the wrong people. Because what anger is, is misplaced frustration. Is it possible that this young man didn't know how to deal with his pain and he turned to anger and rage to medicate his pain? Because I told you all last week, everybody in this room, all of us got our poison of choice. Yeah, some of us in this room would have turned to other things. He turned to violence. And if we don't deal with our pain and we self-medicate that pain, what we do is we delay God's healing process. Why do I bring that up? Why do I even make a correlation between Aaron Hernandez, who had so much potential, the seeds of self-sabotage, and David? The reason I bring that up is because David has a backstory. And there are some commentators, there are some commentators who suggest at 50 years old, when all this stuff is going down, it's because David is trying to medicate his pain. See what are you talking about? Well, <clears throat> David's 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And he's taking cheese and bread to his brothers. He shows up at the Valley of Eli and he's confronted with Goliath. He slays Goliath and he's this celebrated king. The scripture says he immediately starts to serve a guy named Saul. Saul is the king, but God has rejected Saul as king. And now here is David, who is Saul's successor by divine appointment. Have you ever tried to serve somebody? who felt like you were about to replace them, who knew you were about to... Let me, let me pump the brakes for a second. Saul, the scripture says, stood head and shoulders over everybody else in Israel, and the dude was good looking, according to the scripture. Saul's problem was his insecurity. 
There are a lot of men that deal with a Lord Farquaad complex. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever seen Shrek? Remember Lord Farquaad? He rode in on his horse to see Princess Fiona. Looked like this gallant king. And then one of his soldiers had to grab him off the horse, pull his legs out the extensions, and sit him down. And that's the way most men are. Six foot five on the outside, three feet tall on the inside. And let me tell you something, City Church. All you got to do to expose somebody else's insecurity sometimes is just show up. David didn't do nothing to Saul, but show up. And let me tell you Saul's response. He lost the entire kingdom over a song. Let me tell you how Saul lost his mind once and for all. The women started singing. Saul, you killed a thousand. But soldier boy, David. Oh, oh, oh snap. You see that, Dolomar? You see that? You see? You can't see me, player. Soldier boy, David. Uh, uh, He's killed 10,000. Saul, you 6'5", good looking, taller than everybody in Israel. You let this little 16-year-old, freckly, red-haired boy show you up? You killed 1,000. David killed 10,000. Scripture says David served Saul honorably. Saul turned on him threw a spear at him, and for the next 13 years, hunted him down. David's on the run. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where the people you served and gave your best to, people trying to kill you and discredit you. Painful. Painful. And I know it firsthand. I know it firsthand. I know it firsthand. When somebody's insecurity, their inability to deal with their insecurity is turned outward on you. And they try to destroy you in the process. Painful. Painful. Let me, let me admonish and implore and beseech you. You've heard me say this before. I call it comic book theology. That every villain starts out a victim. Joker got thrown into a vat of acid, comes out of the vat of acid, and he said, I'm going to make life miserable for everybody. You know why? Victims become villains because people who don't deal with their pain make life painful for others. And there are a lot of people occupying pulpits today who have become villains who are making life painful for the people in the pews. There are souls trying to destroy David's. Not because David did anything wrong, but because of their own insecurity. It's painful to spend 13 years on the run. Not only that, let me tell you what else Bible scholars say. We're going to get to Psalm 51. But in Psalm 51, David makes this curious statement. 
where he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin did my mother conceive me, and I was shapen in iniquity. There are some Bible commentators who suggest, there are some Bible commentators who suggest that David may have been Jesse's illegitimate son. There are some who say that. They don't only look at Psalm 51, but they also look at the fact that when uh, uh, Samuel showed up to pick the next king of Israel, that David was the only one who wasn't invited. If a prophet shows up at your house and says, go get all your sons, and they invite all of them except you. Maybe at 50 years old, what we see manifesting with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah is a man who had lived with pain, the pain of rejection from his father, from his brothers, and from somebody he served. And could it be at 50 years old now, finally, he's medicating his pain. I'm talking to somebody in this room tonight, tonight, this morning. We all have our drug of choice. And that drug brings us temporary relief. But the cycle continues if we don't deal with the source of the pain. The problem is not the drug of choice. The problem is identifying the pain. Because you can only conquer what you confront. And you can only confront what you identify. What David is doing, killing somebody's, taking somebody's wife and getting her pregnant and then killing her husband, is not the root of the problem. That's the fruit. There's something much deeper happening in David that happens in all of us. That happens in all of us. And, and, and so, 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 so if, we, if we turn left, it ultimately ends in ruin. If we turn right, we experience times of refreshing that come only from the presence of the Lord. Now, the reason this is a cautionary tale is when we experience that divergence, <laughs> we can either go left or right. The problem with going right is what the scripture says, that going right is the road less traveled. I want you to listen to that for a second. I'm talking to everybody in this room. Doing the right thing, the scripture says, is the road less traveled. The scripture says, there is a path that is wide, and many there be that find it. But there is a narrow path, and there are few who find it. When you get to your moment of clarity, don't take the path that everybody else has taken. Because it's human nature to think that if a lot of people are doing it, it must be okay. That's the broad path. That's where all the activity is happening. It looks cool. It looks hip. But the scripture says it leads to destruction. But there is a narrow path. There is a narrow path. And there's only a handful of people on that path. And the scripture says there's only a few people who find it. 
That's why Zig Ziglar said there are no traffic jams on the extra mile. The extra mile is doing the right thing. And I promise you, for the ones who choose the extra mile freeway, there's no traffic jams. For the young people that deal with peer pressure all the time, you're going to feel like you're outnumbered. And what everybody else is doing is going to seem more popular. That road leads to destruction. All right. So we're going to turn right, and this is where I close. We're going to turn right, because it's never too late if we yield our hearts to the voice of God. Where are we? We're talking about, we said 2 Samuel. Everything I said up until now was the introduction for my message, which starts right now. It's like, oh boy. Can y'all give me a few minutes? Just give me a few minutes, okay? So 2 Samuel chapter 12 and Psalm 51, those are our anchor texts. For those of you who follow along on version, those notes are available on version. So all of this has happened. David done, uh, got the girl pregnant. Just feel like I need to say this like an old country preacher. Right? Anyway, <clears throat> we're in Plano. <clears throat> Bathsheba is with child. <clears throat> and he sent this letter, so Uriah's dead now. But how many of you know you can't hide stink? <laughs> I said that like a country preacher. You can't hide stink. Stank. You can cover it up, put it in the garage. Somehow, some way. <laughs> Oof. That broccoli? <laughs> Y'all know how broccoli is after you keep it a couple of days, maybe open the refrigerator. Like, cabbage? Oof. Chitlins? <laughs> how, how many can get down with some chitlins? Huh? chitlins? One or two? Yeah, come on, somebody. Two or three. If you clean them right. I ain't never had chitlins, but <clears throat> somebody said put some hot sauce on them. Upgrade them chitlins with some sriracha. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Let me get back to the message. What was I talking about? Second Samuel 12. <clears throat> you can't hot stink. So, so all this happened now. All this happened, and uh, we got to deal with the, the aftermath. Uh, verse 1 says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Can, you, can we stop there for a second? God is always redemptive. <laughs> God sent the prophet to David to save him. Because David has already killed somebody, got the girl pregnant, hadn't repented. He is so messed up in the head. Insane in the membrane. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me stay focused. He is so messed up in the head 
that he has done this and rationalized it. And now God has to send somebody to run interference. Scripture says, this boy need help. So God sent Nathan. And he came to him and said to him, come on, somebody. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And that little ewe lamb was like a daughter to him. Anybody seen that dude on Instagram with the beard and the little puppy? What's that dude? On the commercial? Said it's his son. This little lamb was just like that to this man. Precious. And verse 4 says, And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock <laughs> and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man and had to, who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Look at David's response in verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the land because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David was like, unthinkable. <laughs> Princess bride. Notice Nathan's response in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This was David's moment of clarity. It took a parable. It took a metaphor from the mouth of a prophet to reveal to David that he took this man's one lamb. David said, whoever did that deserves to die. Can I stop there for a second? Be careful. Be careful. The judgments you assign to other people in their time of foolishness and mayhem, the scripture says that same judgment you use will be measured back to you. That's what Jesus said. The same measure you use to judge other people in their foolishness and their mayhem is the same measure of judgment you will receive in your time of foolishness and mayhem. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the merciful because they will find mercy. I'm talking to the Pharisees in this room. I'm talking to the Pharisees in this room. I'm talking to the people who are quick to take the speck out of their brother's eye when they're walking around with a big fat log in their own eye. And let me tell you what people with big fat logs in their eye do who are trying to perform delicate eye surgery. They hurt a lot of people. So the Pharisees who are quick to judge people and quick to point fingers at people in the time of their failure, 
who don't stop long enough to acknowledge their own sin. That's exactly what David was doing. That man deserves to die. And he had no idea he was saying, I deserve to die for what I did. Notice what happens. Then Nathan said, you are the man. And thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. He was like the guy in the story who had everything and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you more. I wish I had time to spend some time right there. That God said, I would have given you even more. But because you chose to self-medicate your pain, because you chose to take matters into your own hands, this is what's going to happen. I don't even have time to read the whole story. The judgment that came upon David because of his own words, that man deserves to die, is that the sword will never leave your house. The sword will never leave your house. That means generation after generation after generation will turn on each other. Read the stories. David's kids. Not only what other people did to them, but what they did to each other. Because of David's choice. Because of David's choice. And, and, and so I could tell you what happens. I could give you verse by verse. Uh, verse 11 says, thus the Lord says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. He says, because of what you did in your own house, there will be adversity, foolishness and mayhem. There will be an implosion in your own house. You guys will turn on each other because of what you did. Somebody said sin will keep you longer than you plan to stay. David just thought this thing was a one-night stand now that he could fix by killing the woman's husband. Now his entire generation has to deal with adversity. Yeah. So I won't get to that. So it goes up here. And listen, listen look at verse 12. <laughs> Yo, this is verse 12. This is showtime and about to wrap up. Listen to what the prophet said. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel. I'm going to put you on blast. Oh, yeah, you thought this was on the DL, but I'm going to put you out there. Everybody to know, because you can't hide stink. Look at verse 13, though. Somebody say God is redemptive. God is redemptive. Notice what happens in verse 13. So David said to Jonathan, David so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice what happened. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, how long did that take? A moment. A moment. For the forgiveness of God to set in. The problem, though, is God forgives our actions. But there are times when we have to live with the consequences. 
God's forgiveness does not automatically erase the consequences. The judgment was still on his house. He was forgiven. He didn't die. The baby died, though. God said the baby ain't going to live. Are y'all hearing me? And I close with this. If you want the notes, go to the U version. It's all on there. Let me close with this. How many of you enjoy a good burger from time to time? A good burger. Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. May I take your order? Come on, somebody. Y'all see that too? I'm on a different level this morning, man. How many of you enjoy a good burger from time to time? Just a good burger. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this. If you were to eat a burger, say at your own pace, let's say it's a, it's a good-sized burger, right? How long do you think it would take you to consume that burger? Huh? Some of the kids said two seconds. <laughs> a good-sized burger. Let's say you're out with friends and you're, you're... Okay, let's say you're lunch break and you went and got a double cheeseburger. How long do you think that would, you would take? Just at a normal, natural pace. Three to five minutes. Three to five, somebody said 20. I heard 20 up there. About 20? Okay, 20, 20 minutes, consumer, okay. Okay. So let me, let me, let me, let me give you some numbers. I should have been more specific. So a Big Mac, just a Big Mac. Big Mac, all right. Somebody's like, ooh. I'm just doing this because the numbers were readily available. But a Big Mac, 528 calories, just the sandwich alone. So based on a 2,000-calorie diet, which is recommended, 2,000 calories a day, just by eating that sandwich, you've already knocked out a quarter of uh, your uh, recommended intake, caloric intake. 520-plus calories, but then bad calories too, though. Now, if you add the fries and the drink, 1,041. So in one meal, you've already exceeded half of your caloric intake for that day. If you upgrade the drink and get a milkshake, 1,700 calories in that one meal. One meal. Now, <laughs> I ain't hating on you. If that's how you do, I ain't even hating on you if you try a McRib sandwich from time to time. <laughs> let me ask, does anybody know what animal that is that they use for the McRib sandwich? This is chewable ribs, you know, <laughs> because people eat the whole sandwich, the whole McRib. So it's not bone. But what is that stuff that looks like bone? <laughs> they put the pickles on it. But they call it McRib. But that ain't no rib. What, where, what rib is that that you're so soft and chewy? <laughs> right, Jarius? Jarius about to, he about to barf. No, it's true. I just want you to think about this before you eat your next McRib. 
No, there's a reason they bring it back every now and then because people want it. We got a McDonald's right next to the house. McRib is back. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure out what animal that is. What was I talking about again? 1,748 calories. It took you about 15, 20 minutes to consume it. Anybody know how long it'll take to burn it off? Somebody said seven to 10 days. For a 200 pound male to burn a thousand calories, it takes approximately 60 minutes of high interval training, high intensity interval training, or a 45 minute run at an eight mile per hour pace or an eight minute mile. Took you 20 minutes to eat that burger. It's gonna cost you a lot more to burn it off. It was just a moment that it took for David to take Bathsheba. Now it's gonna cost him generations. When the scripture says narrow is the road David's life is a cautionary tale to all of us. Now, this is it. Let me just tell you what it is. David took responsibility. You can put this on the board. What is true repentance? So I gave you the other progression. Here's the other progression. When I take the road less traveled, I don't rationalize my actions. I take responsibility for them. Responsibility is owning the outcomes of my decisions owning the outcomes of my choices and owning the outcomes of my actions. Next, after I take responsibility, then I repent. I must change my thinking in order to change my direction. Let me tell you what most of us do. We confess, but we never repent. Two different things. Confession is simply saying, I did this. Repentance is saying, I did it, I ain't going to do it again. So most of us get stuck in confession. Confession. This is my confession. Oh, this is my confession. Come on, Ursher. Okay. Repentance. Repentance. Let me tell you what repentance is. It is detecting and destroying the lies that led to my bad choices. I'm not going to repent until I get clarity about the lie that I have believed. Somewhere, I've believed a lie. If I'm repeating behavior that God says is bad, then I have believed a lie somewhere. And I cannot change my mind until I detect the lie that I've believed. Are y'all with me? Oh, man, I wish I had time to talk about confession. Listen. I don't have time. Number three, this is a big one, restitution. (laughs) I want you all to hear this. Making everything right with the people you've sinned against. This is what most of us do. We confess our sin and we say, I changed, I'm a better man. But we don't make it right with the people we offended. 
with the people we hurt. Can I beg you and let you know that it is not complete? Your repentance and my repentance is not complete until I have made restitution. Until I make it right. Until I make it right. I want you to hear this. I want you to, the, the, the sibling, the coworker, the employee, the boss that you've harbored something against or that you did something to, the cycle is not complete until you've made restitution. I wish I had time to talk. Can I talk about this next week and finish up? When, when Jesus came to Zacchaeus' house, it wasn't enough for him to say, I believe in you, Jesus. He said, if I have taken anything from anyone unlawfully, I will give it back sevenfold. When David says this man who took this ewe lamb should pay it back fourfold, he's talking about restitution. Because in the old covenant, they understood that it wasn't fixed until you made it right with the people that you hurt. So repenting and saying, I'm sorry, and changing your mind about it is not enough until you make it right with everybody concerned. Y'all see that? Making it right with the people you've sinned against. Then you can experience resolution. Let me tell you what resolution is. It is a humble, I want you to hear this, None of this happens without humility. None of this happens without humility. None of this happens without humility. And that's why old covenant men and women who sinned against God, in fact, entire nations would shave their heads and take off their fancy clothes and put on sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes because they acknowledged that what they had done had hurt the heart of God and had hurt others. And then we will experience what Acts chapter 3 and verse 19 promised, times of refreshing. That's what God wants for all of us. You think God was trying to, to judge David or destroy David? He wasn't trying to do any of that. God is redemptive. God is redemptive, but we can't experience what God's want, God wants for our lives until we see what God sees. Why do you think in the Garden of Eden, God covered Adam and Eve after their sin? That's what the scripture says. Most of us think it was because God wanted, they were naked and ashamed. No, 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 no. That's not why God put, let me tell you why. The scripture says the wages of sin is death. Something had to die. Something had to die without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness. It, the, the, the covering was secondary. An animal had to die because of their sin. Jesus had to die. I want you to hear this. Jesus had to die in order for you and I to be restored to God. You need to change the slide, my wife said. So that times of refreshing. Now, <clears throat> I wish I had more time. I don't. But here's what happened. David brought Bathsheba. They got married. They had a baby named Solomon. God is redemptive. And the Bible says, I forget the verse, in, first, in 2 Samuel 12, that God loved Samuel. 
I'm Solomon. Figure that out. That after all that David had done, that David would have a second son with the same woman, Bathsheba. And then the scripture will say in verse 24 that God loved Solomon, the son that was born to Bathsheba, who David committed adultery with and whose husband he killed. God is redemptive. So when we say all of this stuff about being gospel shaped and our lives being informed by the word of God. It's because God wants the very best for us. God doesn't want to destroy us. Even after our failure, God is still redemptive because he wants times of refreshing to come. And that is having the power to restore freshness of vitality. And this is my closing statement. Be careful not to sacrifice the peace of God on the altar of self-gratification. Because self-gratification is a cheap and regrettable substitute. I want you to hear that as I close. There's the peace of God in times of refreshing. And then there is self-gratification. How many of you realize that self-gratification sometimes seems like the peace of God? If I can gratify myself and satisfy myself, I'm doing okay. But it is a cheap and regrettable substitute. Don't sacrifice the peace of God by taking matters into your own hands. Let's pray. Father, seal this word in our hearts as only you can.